Hey everyone, welcome back to my podcast, Anatomy and Physiology Bit by Bit. This is your host, Dr. Steve Sullivan from Bucks County Community College, just outside of Philadelphia. So why the bonus episode? Well, I got a great email from a listener the other day, Nina in Fort Collins, Colorado. She wrote, Dr. S., my elementary school teachers told me that on the inside, blood is blue. Then it turns red when it touches the air. Is that true? Thank you, Nina. Uh, Even though it infuriates me that you have to ask this, it's not your fault. And I'm so glad you did because it made me think of this idea for a bonus episode. Mythbusters, A&P edition. There are so many myths out there about the human body, and many of my students come into my class believing So I'm going to spend this episode dispelling four of these myths. The color of blood seems to be the most prevalent, so let's start with that one. Myth number one. Blood is blue on the inside and red on the outside. When we look at our veins through our skin, they appear to be blue. And this has led millions of people to assume and teach children that blood is blue when it's inside our veins. I literally had to have a discussion with one of my son's teachers once to tell her that blood is always red. Please stop telling the kids it's blue when it's on the inside of our body. The rationale has been that blood is blue until it hits the air and then the air turns it red. This is simply not true. It is true that oxygen-rich blood in most of our arteries is redder than the reddish-violet blood that's mostly in our veins, but it's always a shade of red. It is never, ever, ever blue. So let's, let's break it down to explain why it looks blue when we look at our skin. First off, let's consider how we see things and how vision works. We don't see objects. We only see the light that is being illuminated by or reflected by objects. You see, the photoreceptors in our retinas, those sensory receptors, can only be stimulated by light. That's the only thing that activates them. So our vision is limited to the light that is available. And different colors are light with different wavelengths. When we look at our skin, some of the light is reflecting directly off the surface of our skin, and some of the light is penetrating the skin and reflecting off of deeper structures, like veins. The reason veins look blue from the outside of our skin is because our eyes are only being stimulated by the light that made it through the skin, was reflected off of our veins, and successfully made it back through the skin again so it can enter our eyes and strike our retinas. Since blue and red wavelengths of light penetrate the skin with different degrees of success, and much more blue light is reflected back to our eyes than red, we perceive the veins as blue. And then what happens is we just assume that the blood inside the veins must be blue. Not the case. You can very easily test this in two ways. First, if you've ever had blood taken, you'll notice that 
when the blood leaves your body through a needle and immediately enters a tube, that blood is what color? It's red. That tube is called a vacutainer, and the tube is vacuum sealed, meaning there's no air in there. So how would the blood still be red if there's no air, right? So if you would think that blood is blue till it touches the air, it would be blue in that tube because there's no air in that tube. But it's not. The blood's red. Another way to do it, which would be easier, is to take a flashlight and hold it up against the palm of your hand and then look at the back of your hand. What color is it? The light comes through red, right? So the reason why the light comes through red is because it's being shown through all of the capillaries of blood that are in your hand. And the blood inside those capillaries is red. So it's almost like you're taking a red filter and putting it over your flashlight and so that so that you see red light coming through. So Myth number one, busted. Blood is always red. It might be slightly different shades of red, depending on the oxygenation, but it's always red. It is never blue. Myth number two. Women have one rib more than men do. This is false. In the normal average healthy adult, men and women have each 12 pairs of ribs for a total of 24. Occasionally, there will be congenital anomalies wherein a person is born with an extra rib above or below the normal ribs. But under normal circumstances, there are two ribs, a left and a right, attached to each of the 12 vertebrae in the thoracic region of your spine. That's your upper back. Now, yes, some people may be born with either a rib attached to either or both sides of the lowest cervical vertebra, C7, which is called a cervical rib, or there may be one attached to one or both sides of the highest lumbar vertebra, L1. That would be called a lumbar rib. These are usually clinically insignificant congenital anomalies, meaning something you're born with that's different about you but clinically doesn't really affect you in many ways. Usually, you don't even know you have this until you get x-rays taken for something else and they find them on the x-rays. Now, sometimes, occasionally, those cervical ribs, if you have a cervical rib, it could get in the way of the brachial plexus, which is the bundle of nerves that goes from your neck to your upper limb through your shoulder. Uh, so sometimes a cervical rib could... Um, make the pathway that the brachial plexus has to take smaller. That pathway is called the thoracic outlet. And if it, if it impinges on that brachial plexus, then you will have symptoms, uh, pain, numbness, tingling, weakness into the upper limb. That's called thoracic outlet syndrome. And sometimes a cervical rib can be the cause of that, but, um, but not always. So the origin of this myth about um, men having one fewer rib than women uh, seems to be from the creation story in the book of Genesis in the Bible. In that story, uh, God apparently took a rib from Adam, the first man, and used it to create Eve, the first woman. 
For this reason, there seems to be some Bible scholars teaching their students that men have one rib fewer than women. It's certainly, I'm sure, it's the minority of Bible scholars who are teaching people this and who believe it. But nonetheless, it does come up in my class uh, from time to time, and it is patently false. It's very, very easy to dispel this myth. All you got to do is take two skeletons, man and woman, count the ribs. This is an easy one. Myth number two, busted. Myth number three, the funny bone. Have you ever banged your funny bone on something and felt the excruciating pain that it causes? Not to mention the numbness, the tingling, the shock-like pain that runs down your forearm. Well, that pain isn't from hitting the bone. That's actually from hitting a nerve. The bony bulge on the inside of your forearm, which would be like the medial side of your elbow, that's called the medial epicondyle. It's what's called an apophysis, which means uh, a laterally located protrusion of the bone that is separated from the main bone by a growth plate made of hyaline cartilage. Now, this is not to be confused with an epiphysis, which is in line with the length of a bone and helps the bone to grow in length, also connected by hyaline cartilage growth plates. That's an epiphysis. An apophysis is off to the side. It protrudes laterally. So the medial epicondyle is an apophysis. And that's the bump. That's the bump that you can feel and bone in your elbow. <clears throat> but hitting that medial epicondyle isn't why it hurts so much. See, coming down the upper arm on the medial side is a nerve called the ulnar nerve. It wraps around the medial epicondyle on its way to the forearm, where it supplies uh, most of the flexor muscles of the forearm and the medial hand and the skin of the medial forearm and hand. That nerve is only protected by a thin layer of fat and skin as it passes around the medial epicondyle. So when you hit it, it's almost like you're hitting directly on the nerve, and nerve tissue is extremely sensitive. So the pain is intense, and the compression of the nerve, which is called neuropraxia, that's a, ner a temporary nerve compression, causes temporary numbness and tingling along the nerve's distribution. And this temporary numbness and tingling, that's actually something called dysesthesia. So, um, so that's, that's what's causing that particular sensation. So, um, so, so here's a good question. What's so funny about it? Right? Well, the reason it's called the funny bone may be because the medial epicondyle is part of the upper arm bone, which is called the humerus. All right, myth number three, the funny bone, busted. Myth number four, humans have five senses. This one has always bothered me because it breaks a rule in teaching that I find to be very important. And that rule is don't simplify something so much that you end up being inaccurate. When people use the term the five senses, they're typically referring to vision, hearing, taste, smell, and touch. But it leaves out so many more senses that we have. I mean, first, well, well it might be better if we just consider what, a sens what sensation is. Our nervous system has billions and 
billions of sensory receptors, if not more. And their job is to respond to a stimulus caused by some kind of change in the environment, be it the external environment or the internal environment inside your body. Then nerve signals are generated that travel along neurons to the central nervous system, which would be the brain and spinal cord. Our sense organs and sensory receptors are how our central nervous system stays aware of the conditions in and around our bodies, so we can make informed decisions about how to react with those conditions. Of course, we see things when light hits our retinas. We hear things when vibrations of our eardrums eventually result in waves of fluid in our cochleas. We smell things when odorant molecules strike olfactory hairs in our nose. We taste things when tasty molecules strike gustatory hairs in our taste buds. And we feel things when our skin touches them. And those five are just the beginning. We also have sensory receptors that tell us about our body's position in space, the angles of our joints, the tension in our muscles, the degree of stretch in our muscles, whether or not we're moving, and how fast, and in what direction. All of those things are sensations that we have to have input from in our central nervous system. We also need to know about the chemical composition of our body's fluids. How much glucose do we have, insulin, sodium, calcium, all our hormones, hydrogen ions, and bicarbonate ions for our pH balance and way more than I can even mention in one episode. All these require chemoreceptors for our survival so that we can monitor our levels of those particular conditions. Homeostatic balances of those items is extremely important. Now, the interesting thing about those is that we don't necessarily perceive or have conscious awareness of our levels of sodium or calcium and hormones and things like that. Not unless we have symptoms. If the levels are so out of whack we have symptoms, then we'll have conscious awareness of them. But the nerve signals from those receptors don't go as far into the brain as the ones that allow us to recognize or identify a scent or a sound. Analyzing and making sense of the sensory signals we receive is called perception, and it requires the highest level of the brain, the cerebrum. Analyzing the body's water content so we can decide whether or not to feel thirsty is something we should not have to be aware of or make a, de or make a conscious decision about. Those nerve signals stop at lower parts of the brain, so that the lower parts of our brain, like our diencephalon and, and brainstem, can take care of the survival things that are necessary for that kind of stuff. Making sure that we know what our blood pressure is and if it's too high or too low. Those are not things that we need to be consciously aware of because if we have to make a decision on whether or not to raise or lower our heart rate or raise or lower our blood sugar or raise or lower our blood pressure, uh, we wouldn't survive very long. So these should be automatic things that, take, that are taken care of beyond our conscious control. But that's still sensation. You know, another sensation that we think of is pain. I don't necessarily think pain is a sensation. 
in, in fact, I think pain is a perception. Pain is is how we perceive a particular level of tissue damage that occurs in our body. Let me let me explain. So in our body, we have these sensory receptors called nociceptors, and they respond or are stimulated by the chemicals that are released by damaged tissues. So when you have tissue damage, you cut yourself, for example. Chemicals are released from those damaged tissues that stimulate nociceptors. And those nociceptors are the sensory receptors that will generate a nerve signal that goes to your brain, and you will perceive that level of tissue damage as discomfort or pain. So pain is not necessarily a sensation. Pain is what we perceive when the tissues are damaged. It is the it is our experience. And our and our experience differs from person to person, even if the level of tissue damage is the same. Right? So you can have two people with the exact same injury and their subjective level of pain is different. And that's because pain is not the sensation. Pain is how we are perceiving the sensory data that is coming in from those damaged tissues. You know, another one that I didn't even mention yet is thermoreception. Thermoreception is how our body responds to temperature changes. I mean, point being, we have more than five senses. I mean, that's the key here, right? So we've identified much more than five senses uh, just talking about them here. Uh, so myth number four, the five senses, busted. Okay, so there's four myths right there. Four myths in A&P, busted. I hope you enjoyed this bonus episode of Anatomy and Physiology Bit by Bit. Uh, be honest, I'll bet there's at least one of these myths that you believed before today. The one about blood being blue is huge. I'll bet half my incoming students believe this one when they come and see me for the first time. All right, once again, thanks for listening. Thank you, Nina, for your question and sparking this idea for a bonus episode. I really appreciate that. I would also really appreciate it if it took a minute or two to review this podcast, rate this podcast. That would really be huge for me. Um, thanks so much. Stay safe. Avoid coronavirus. Stay well. And I will talk to you soon. Hey, everyone. Don't forget to check out my YouTube channel, Student Help for AP. That's the word student help, the number four, AP. There's lots of tutor videos on there that I think could really help you. And I also have an Instagram account and a Twitter feed with the same name. Please also don't forget to rate this podcast and review it if you possibly can. Anatomy and Physiology Bit by Bit is a production of Minus 55 Media with a special thanks to Bucks County Community College and my family.